0: today about the gift of prayer. I don't know what comes into your mind when you think about prayer, but for a lot of people, this issue, this topic is just endlessly intriguing. The thought that we can we can have a conversation, that we can talk to the God who created us, uh, stirs people. But for others of us, the thought of prayer just comes with a sense of burden and guilt. We've, we've tried prayer and We feel like it's important, and yet, whenever we attempt it, it feels like something is missing there. There's a Southern Gothic writer by the name of Flannery O'Connor. She has a series of of really uh, interesting short stories. In 1946, she began a prayer journal, and she had these interesting words that described her own struggle with prayer. She said, Dear God, I cannot love you the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. What I am afraid of, dear God, is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole room, and that I will judge myself by the shadow that is nothing. I do not know you because I am in the way. And in another place, she had this desperate cry. Can't anyone teach me how to pray? I love the honesty of Flannery O'Connor. She sees within herself a desire to want to love God, to draw near to him. But she feels like she keeps getting in the way, that the own shadow of her life eclipses the beauty and radiance of God. And yet she wants to, But she doesn't know how to draw near to him in prayer because she keeps getting in the way in this desperate plea. Can't anyone teach me how to pray? We're going to look at a passage specifically today in which the disciples watch Jesus pray. And then one of them, probably a spokesman from the group of disciples, goes to Jesus and asks, Can you teach us how to pray? And so I hope that this is an encouragement to you, whether you're trying to figure out what it is that you believe or whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus. We've been designed to have an inclination to go to God in prayer. And so we want to dial in and listen to what Jesus has to say. And so we're going to call our study today Shameless Boldness in Prayer. <laughs> we're going to not just talk about prayer, but being shamelessly bold in prayer as well. And we're going to see that we have really the opportunity to do that Because Jesus invites us to pray just in this way. So let's pause as we get ready to go into this study and actually ask the Lord in prayer to teach us this day. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together to hear this teaching about Jesus. We thank you for the Gospel of Luke and how this ancient physician investigated the life of Jesus and interviewed eyewitnesses and sat down in writing the life of Jesus so that we may have confidence about the things that he said and taught and did. You know us, Lord, and you know that many of us struggle with prayer. Sometimes perhaps we have moments where we sense your nearness to us, but oftentimes we just feel like we get in the way. Our mind wanders, our crazy, busy lives intersect and interrupt. And sometimes we even just fall asleep in the midst of prayer, and we feel like that perhaps there's something more. Wherever we are on this issue this morning, we pray that you would encourage our hearts, that you would strengthen us, and that you would indeed give us a spirit of prayer, bold prayer, shamelessly bold prayer, as we come before you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is how the gospel of Luke unfolds for us in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now I think it would have been absolutely amazing to have been there at the time of Jesus and to see some of the things he did and to hear from his own lips some of the things that he taught. But perhaps what would be most fascinating is to listen to Jesus pray. I imagine he prayed like no one had ever heard before. And as they watch Jesus pray on this particular moment, they're inclined to go to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us how to pray. Just like John, speaking of John the Baptist and his disciples taught his disciples to pray, Lord, teach us how to pray. There is something about the way that Jesus drew near to God in prayer, and they wanted that. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, said, Jesus' example teaches us that prayer is about relationship. When he prays, it's not performing a duty. He is getting close to his father. I love that description because I think that's exactly what tantalized the disciples as they wanted to learn to pray like Jesus. There's something different. He's he's not just doing a rule or an order of prayer, he's actually drawing near to his Father. And so in response, Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us and lead us not into temptation." As we listen to these words, some of you might be saying, isn't something missing here? Aren't there a few phrases that are left out here? And um, Indeed, uh, you're probably thinking of the time when Jesus taught the, the multitudes about prayer. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's this particular place called the Sermon on the Mount where there's a fuller version of this particular teaching that Jesus gave. And In fact, perhaps your translation might actually include in the Gospel of Luke that passage from Matthew in the place here. I'm using the ESV, and it's it's based on some earlier uh, translations of the Greek text. And here it gives us a condensed version of what Jesus taught more fully on other occasions. And so, like a good teacher, Jesus repeated himself. The Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke probably aren't the only times he taught on prayer. But here he gives them a short, condensed version of this prayer. And I just want to run through this real quick because he's going to then launch from here into a... A story, a short parable to illustrate why we ought to pray. So, the first petition here Jesus instructs us to pray with is simply this phrase Father, hallowed be your name. Now, this is weird language for us because we don't usually use the word hallowed very often. As I thought about it, the only time I think that we use it in the English language is to talk about like sacred grounds, perhaps like at a cemetery, that these are. Hallowed grounds. Or perhaps we might refer to the traditions, for example, at Texas A&M or our favorite school as the hallowed traditions of our school. But that word hallowed simply means to cherish or to revere. And here Jesus teaches his disciples to pray that the Father's name would be hallowed. God's name would be hallowed. And particularly, Jesus has in mind the phrase Father. In fact, H. B. Charles, in his book, It Happened After Prayer, (laughs) reminds us that we should find it difficult to get past this opening address, Father. We should linger there. We should rejoice in it. We should stand in awe of God's gracious condescension. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the God of the universe, the God who created you, the God who fills your lungs this very moment, The God who gives you a million and one different gifts throughout this life. This God you can address as Father. This is the the privilege that Jesus was dying to give us. In fact, in the Gospel of John, in the opening chapter, the apostle tells us that all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he, that is Jesus, gave the right to become children of God. Part of the mission of Jesus was to bring people like you and me into an intimate relationship with the Creator so that we don't know him as just some big guy up in the sky, but we know him as a caring, heavenly Father. In fact, John would later write Christians living in the Roman Empire these words. See what love, I'm sorry, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God And so we are. So in many ways, the the very first thing we need to understand about prayer is we're drawing near to a personal being, and a personal being who's kind, and we get the privilege of calling upon as Father. That's what Jesus uh, wanted us to know. That's what drove Jesus in his own prayer life. In fact, J.I. Packer in his classic book on knowing God said, you sum up the whole New Testament, if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. Father, he says, is the Christian name for God. It's the name Jesus gave us to use. And he goes on to say, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers, And his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. And so the very first place Jesus wants us to begin in prayer is simply being blown away by the fact that we have the privilege of calling upon God as our Father. That's the privilege Jesus died to give us. He also calls us to pray, your kingdom come. And so in the the process of wanting God's name to be hallowed, cherished, revered, He also wants us to be on board with God's agenda. And so God's agenda is the kingdom of God. This is the theme of Jesus' entire life and ministry. In fact, Jeremy Treat in his book, Seek First, the book we referenced here before, reminds us that the Bible is the story of God's making his good creation a glorious kingdom. And the kingdom of God is that vision of the world reordered around the powerful love of God in Christ. And so Jesus says he wants us to be dialed in on the agenda that God has for this world, which is the renewal of all things, the kingdom of God. But Jesus also tells us to pray to God, asking him to give us each day our daily bread. This is something that I took for granted until I lived in Peru, while I was among people who the average income is less than a dollar a day. And so when I heard my friends in Peru pray, give us this day our daily bread, They meant it in a way that I just took for granted. They understood how dependent they were upon the Father to provide for them. And so Jesus reminds us to pray for gifts from God. Number four, he tells us to ask God to forgive us our sins. And as Jesus taught us over and over again, God is a God whose heart is full of mercy. He delights in forgiving sin of all those who draw near to him. And so Jesus reminds us, this is always appropriate to pray. And then lastly, lead us not into temptation. We are beset with weaknesses. We are often inclined to go astray. And so Jesus here wants us to pray to God, asking him to redirect our footsteps. Paul Miller, once again, said these words. Dependency is the heartbeat of prayer. Jesus is, without question, the most dependent human being who has ever lived He wanted to be in continuous contact with his Father. And so if we want to pray like Jesus, we have to understand our own dependency upon God. Someone has rightly said, prayerlessness is our act of declaration of independence. (laughs) And prayer in a very real way is is our, our own way of telling our good Father how desperately dependent we are upon him for everything. And so here's an important point I want us to consider. Prayer has everything to do with our heart's posture toward God. But also with his heart's posture towards us. Let me say that again. Prayer has everything to do with our heart's posture towards God. If we don't think of God as a kind, generous, loving, heavenly father... Who wants to hear from us, who we express dependency upon, then we would never grow in prayer. Prayer has everything to do with our heart's posture towards God, but also with his heart's posture toward us. And so to highlight this important truth, Jesus is going to go in and and just give a a quick little story. It's it's a a short parable, and it's, it's humorous. He says in verse five, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Jesus says, I want you to think about it like this. You have a friend who shows up unannounced. This is back in the day when they didn't have texts where they could say, I'm five minutes out from your house. There's a friend who showed up at his house. And in that day, hospitality was everything. And so this friend shows up. He doesn't have bread, but what he does is he runs to his neighbor's house, his, his good friend, and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. A buddy of mine showed up, and I have nothing to set before him. And who, will he answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now, it might be a little bit annoying to have someone knock on your door at midnight after you're already in bed. But in a situation like this, a good friend, who would not just get up and say, sure, take this bread and and entertain your guest with it? Jesus says, who has a friend that would do something like this? He says in verse 8, but I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, which is a weird way of putting it, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So Jesus says, look, even if he won't get up because he's your good friend and would love to help you out in a situation like this that you find yourself in, but because of your persistence, your impudence, he will get up and do it. And here he uses a word. which In the Greek, simply means shamelessly presumptuous. Or sheer audacity. That's why we're translating it together today as shameless boldness. Even if your friend won't get up and give you the bread because he is your good friend. But because of your shameless boldness in asking him for this in the middle of the night. Knowing that you are a friend who would give him something like this. He will grant it to you. Now I remember when I was a young Christian reading this passage and thinking. Am I supposed to think of God as a neighbor who doesn't really want to help me out in that moment. And I was, I was kind of confused for a little bit about that. I don't know if you've wrestled with that, but is that what Jesus is intending to teach here? And if you're wrestling with that, let me just say, absolutely not. Jesus is using an argument, saying if this is what your friend is like, but he will answer you because of your persistence. Think about how God will answer you if you're persistent in prayer as well. And Jesus says this to highlight this truth. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Here Jesus uses three quick commands. He says, "Ask, seek and knock." But the way this is structured in the original language, It has the idea of continual asking, continual seeking, continual knocking. Jesus is saying, look, when you go before the Father and you you pray to him, go with a persistence. Go with a shameless boldness. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. This is the way that you approach God. And so our part, Jesus says, is what? It's to ask, it's to seek, and it's to knock. God's part is what? His part is to answer the prayer, to answer the asking, to answer the seeking, to answer the knocking, according to his heavenly wisdom. So this raises a question for us. When we go to God in prayer, asking, seeking, knocking, do we really want what we're asking do we really want what we're seeking? Do we really want what we're knocking for? And it sounds like kind of a strange question because you're like, well why wouldn't I be, <laughs> why would I be doing this if, if I if I wasn't wanting it? But but this begs the question, do we want, are we just going before God maybe like a cosmic vending machine where we put certain buttons and he's supposed to to jump through that hoop and so it's just kind of a almost like a a genie in a bottle kind of thing. Leon Morris, in his commentary, I think gets at the heart of what's going on here. He says, We must not play at prayer, but must show persistence if we do not receive the answer immediately. It is not that God is unwilling and must be pressed into answering. The whole context makes it clear that he is eager to give. But if we do not want what we're asking for, enough to be persistent, we do not want it very much. Have you ever seen a dog sitting at the foot of his master, staring at the food in his hand? We have a couple dogs, and it's just funny the way they dial in on the food that we have. Martin Luther was one time sitting and having some food, and he noticed his dog just dialed in, just locked in, staring at the food in his hand. And he said this, Oh, if only I could pray the way this dog watches the meat. All his thoughts are concentrated on the peace of me. He has no other thought or wish or hope. <laughs> I love that as an illustration of someone who is asking the Father, who is seeking after the Father, who is knocking on the door of his Father, dialed in, engaged, expecting the Father to answer. So Jesus goes on and, and he presses the point even further. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? <laughs> this is a kind of humorous, isn't it? I mean, who can imagine a father if his son comes and says, Father, can I have some fish to eat? We'll say, Okay, hold out your hand and pull out and put a snake in his hand. Or says, Father, can I have an egg to eat? We'll say, Okay, hold out your hand. And in the place of the egg, put a scorpion. Who would do that? I mean, there's probably some prankster fathers who would do that. I'm sure that we could find some videos on YouTube or something like that of, of fathers freaking out their kids. But, uh, but Jesus is making a point here. Like, who, you know, who does this? Who in their right mind does this? And then he says this. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is kind of a, I feel like a splash of cold water in the face from Jesus. If you, who are evil, and here Jesus is talking about the the natural inclination of our heart, which is not to be centered upon God, but upon ourselves. He says, look, if, if you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is interesting, isn't it? You say, I didn't think I was asking for the Holy Spirit, I didn't think that's what I was seeking. I didn't think when I was knocking on the door, what I was wanting was the Holy Spirit. We know from the teaching of Scripture and from Jesus himself that the Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God. And here, Jesus tells us, what God wants to give us more than anything is more of his own personal presence. In fact, the Apostle Paul would later tell believers in the the area of Galatia these words. He said, because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Here, speaking of sons as being those who, in that world, receive the inheritance. It says, because you are sons, or if he was speaking in our day, he would say, because you are sons and daughters of God, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, God's own presence in our life inclines us to call out to him, using the term Abba, Father. Abba is simply a, a term of endearment. Dearest Father. And as we said before, the greatest present God could ever give you is the gift of his presence. And so what Jesus wants us to see is that behind anything that we could ask God for, or seek him for, or knock on his door for, what we should want most and what God wants to give more than anything is more of his self to you. Is that what you want? Is that what you would be satisfied for, even if he answered your prayer in a different way than what you were expecting? Or even if he said no in that moment? We've referenced our friend, Paul Tripp, who said, how many of us can honestly say what I want out of life is God? What Jesus prized more than anything was his relationship with the Heavenly Father. What he was dying to give us was access to the Heavenly Father. What Jesus wants us to understand is that there is nothing apart from him. And if we have him, we have everything. And if we don't have him, we are in desperate and dire circumstances. And so let's ask this question that we ask every week when we work our way through this Gospel of Luke. Why does Luke remind us of this? Why does he include this account in his Gospel of Jesus? Now, remember, Luke is wanting to convince us of who Jesus is. He believes Jesus is worth following with everything you've got. But he also is reminding us that what Jesus wants to do is to invite us into his revolution, his revolution of love. That's why he spoke about the kingdom over and over again. And so Jesus wants to remind those who who would dare to follow him that in following him, they're not on their own. You're not on your own. You have a heavenly father who is more than willing to give you everything that you need. David Winneman, in his wonderful book, The Parables of Jesus, made this commentary. He said... The promise of answered prayer. And that's what Jesus is is saying here. He's talking about answered prayer. The promise of answered prayer is a promise that in calling people to join the revolution of God with all its sacrifices and demands, Jesus is not calling people to a lonely and impossible struggle, but into a relationship with a father who listens to his children, cares about their needs, and loves to give them good things. And so if we can summarize our study so far, put it like this. Jesus teaches us to pray with shameless boldness as if our Heavenly Father could not refuse. Jesus invites us into a relationship with God and to a posture before him of prayer so that we come before him just like a child might rush into his father's office shamelessly, boldly asking for what's on his heart as if the good, good father could not refuse the request. So a couple points of application. I think that these are some key takeaways that we ought to have with us this day as we leave this place. Jesus wants us to pray confidently to our heavenly father. Does that mark your prayers? A sense of confidence before him. Tim Chester once said in his book, you can pray, the father will no more reject our prayers than he will reject the prayers of his own son, Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has an inclination toward you? That he wants to take care of you? That he wants to answer your prayers? That he wants to give you more of himself than you could possibly dare to dream. The book of Romans, we're told, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? John Piper, he described this passage as the glorious logic of heaven. If God has given you the most costly gift that is, the life of his son, so that you can have relationship with him, you can be welcomed into his kingdom with open arms, you can know the forgiveness of sins, you can have adoption as his son, if God gave you the very hardest thing it was for him to give, then why do you think he would be stingy with anything else? John Flavel, the English minister in the 1600s, said this, Surely, if he would not spare his own Son." One stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery. It can never be imagined that ever he should, after this, deny or withhold from his people, for whose sake all this was suffered, any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. And so, my friend, if if we get this, then we can understand why the author to the the Hebrews said, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So Jesus wants us to pray confidently to the Father as if he could not refuse us. The implication with that is point number two. Let us pray expectantly to our Heavenly Father not just confidently, but expectantly, as if he could not refuse us. Now I know what some of us are thinking. Isn't this going to lead to some kind of name it and claim it theology? God, what I really want today is a 2020 maroon Camaro with dark tin and windows. God, surely you can, that's easy for you, right? And remember, Jesus is calling us into a life of discipleship. He's inviting us to join his revolution. And so he's not saying God is a cosmic vending machine, but he is a good father. And he's not going to withhold anything good for you in seeking to follow Jesus. And so what we need to hear Jesus saying is, listen, when you join me in my revolution, when you follow in my footsteps this thing we call the life of discipleship, then shamelessly, boldly pray to God for whatever is on your heart because he hears you. He loves you. He desires you. And he wants to take care of you. So don't be afraid to ask. Don't be found thinking you should pray, but you don't. Don't leave blessings on the table, so to speak. Sometimes we sing this song at Mercy Hill called 10,000 Reasons. I think maybe we actually sung it last week. And there's this wonderful line that says, You're rich in love and slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness, I will keep on singing. I wonder if maybe in our thinking today, we could just in the place of singing put the word praying. (laughs) You're rich in love and slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness, God, I will keep on praying. 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. In conclusion, my friends, I want to uh, tell you about some words that one of my professors in seminary, Knox Chamlin, once said. I can't remember if he was teaching on this particular passage on prayer or not, but what he said ever stuck with me. This is one of the most godly men I've ever been um, privileged to be around. He's the most Christ-like person, one of the most humble people. And he was a man of prayer. And he said this. He said, listen, God answers prayer in one of four ways. I think this might be helpful to you. Number one, or one way might be, no, I love you too much. I'm thankful that God in my own life has said no to some of the things I've asked him for as evidence of his love. No, but trust me, I love you. Three, yes, but not yet. Four, yes. Why didn't you ask sooner? What Jesus wants us to know, what drove Jesus himself in prayer, is that God has a great big heart, and that he's not stingy. He draws us into relationship with himself. And he wants us to come before him in prayer, shamelessly, boldly asking, seeking, knocking. So my friends, what if, what if we took Jesus at his word? What if we began to see God not as a cosmic vending machine, but, but as a heavenly father who draws us into relationship with himself because of what Christ has done for us? And what if what we wanted most behind all of our requests is actually more of God in our life? And what if you and I had a prayer life that was characterized, characterized by shameless boldness before the Father as we approach him as his loving children and his children who are beloved and loved, asking, seeking and knocking, knowing that God delights in answering our prayers. So, Mercy Hill Church, may you be a people of shameless boldness as you grow in prayer this week.